If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. The Six Wives are just such a fascinating story. It's like a soap opera, but it's real and it happened. Six is just a mad number of wives because it was a really tumultuous time to be a queen. England, everyone knows how Henry behaves with the people who betray him or just the people he thinks betrayed him. You literally couldn't make it up. It's a story of such drama, twists and turns. I think she deserves redemption, really, from um, how history has painted her out to be. She was such a risk that the king had to go to unprecedented lengths to kill her. They are each fascinating, quite apart from the fact that their stories became entwined with the most notorious king in our history. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. Divorced. Beheaded. Survived. When it comes to juicy historical sagas, they don't come much better than the marital history of England's most notorious monarch. But after centuries of myth have built up around this story, has it clouded our view of the real women involved? Hello and welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, Six Wives. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and with the help of expert historians, I'll be peeling back those layers of myth-making to take a fresh look at these six fascinating women who shaped the course of Henry's reign and the history of England. In this episode, we're turning to the woman who finally fulfilled Henry's dearest desire, but paid the ultimate price. 
It's often said that Jane Seymour was passive and demure, the wife who Henry loved the most. But as we'll uncover in this episode, there's much that remains mysterious about this queen whose reign was cut tragically short. Joining me as ever to chart the triumphs and turbulence of the Tudor King's six marriages is historian Dr Tracy Borman, joint chief curator at Historic Royal Palaces and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and the Private Lives of the Tudors. The evidence for Jane Seymour is, you know, she's flawless. She's the, the wife who doesn't put a foot wrong. But it's so ironic when you look at what actually happened. And this episode, Tracy and I were joined by historian and author Nicola Tallis, an expert on Tudor royal women who began by introducing us to the woman who would become Henry's short-lived third wife, Jane Seymour. She is arguably the most significant of Henry's wives because she was the only one of them who provided Henry with his longed-for male heir. To really understand Jane's time as queen and why the king chose her as his third wife, it's really important to get to grips with what was going on in Henry's reign at the time that Jane came on the scene. Because it was a time when things could hardly have been more tumultuous. So Henry doesn't hang about with wife number three. He gets betrothed to Jane Seymour a day after Anne Boleyn's execution. Now, their courtship, it's always hard to define exactly when these things start. But Jane Seymour is a name that's been on most people's lips for about a year by the time they are betrothed in May 1536. And I think from Henry's point of view, he's getting desperate now. He is approaching 30 years on the throne. He still has just one child, and that's a daughter, Mary. He needs a son. And that is a big part, if not the biggest part, of Jane Seymour's appeal. She holds out the promise, finally, of giving Henry a son. As Tracy mentioned there, Jane Seymour was a name that had been on people's lips for a year or so by the time of her wedding to Henry. And she came from a familiar but fairly unremarkable family at the royal court. So Jane Seymour was born in around about 1508. We don't know exactly when she was born, but she was the daughter of Sir John Seymour and Marjorie Wentworth. And Sir John Seymour was a relatively humble knight who hailed from Wolf Hall in Wiltshire. And Marjorie Wentworth had royal blood in her veins because she was descended from Edward III. So the family were well respected by Henry VIII, but were relatively low-key at his court, so to speak. In terms of political or dynastic alliances, Jane had little to offer Henry. So what was it that drew the king to her? Where I think she, she really comes to the fore is through the fact that by this time Henry VIII is tiring of Anne Boleyn and we have to bear in mind that Anne hadn't handled the transition between wife and mistress particularly well. So the qualities that had appealed to Henry when she was his mistress repelled him when she became his wife. And this is where Jane really played her ace card, to be honest, because I think she was far cleverer than she's perhaps been given credit for. So where Anne appeared fiery, Jane appeared demure and meek. To all intents and purposes, she played the role of the submissive very nicely. And I think that after 
the tempestuous Anne, that was what appealed to Henry. I think Nicola's absolutely right in that the real appeal of Jane, apart from that she might give him a son, is that she was the exact opposite to Anne Boleyn. He'd had enough of this feisty, tempestuous, outspoken woman. He wanted somebody who at least appeared meek and mild. And Thomas Cromwell made the comparison between the vicious old hack that was Anne Boleyn and then the fine new horse that he had to ride in Jane Seymour. All very charming. Of course, the reason that Jane ended up in Henry's orbit in the first place was because of her role as lady-in-waiting to his then-wife, Anne Boleyn. And Anne herself had caught Henry's eye when she was a lady-in-waiting for the then-queen Catherine. And safe to say, she did not respond well to someone following in her footsteps. Before long, Jane found herself in the firing line of Anne's infamous temper. We have the account of Jane Dormer, who was an attendant and a close friend of Mary I, so Jane's stepdaughter later on. And it's from her that we have some information that tells us that on one occasion, for example, Anne walked in and and caught Jane, sat on Henry's knee and flew into a rage and lashed out at her. So I think that this, given the source that the information is probably quite accurate. And given what we know of Anne's personality as well, I am sure that she would have lashed out at Jane on more than one occasion. And it must have been a very, very difficult path for them to navigate. While Anne seethed about her husband's new flirtation, other figures at court were more confused than anything else. Courtiers were at something of a loss uh, to explain Henry's attraction to Jane Seymour because she did seem, you know, quite meek and mild, very plain, actually. And it was the Imperial Ambassador Chapuis who made rather a naughty comment about she must have something going on out of sight physically that appealed to Henry is all, that's the most delicate way I can think to put it. But I think there was something about having a compliant, uh, a passive wife that really appealed to Henry. He'd had not just barely three years of marriage to Anne Boleyn and and a stormy marriage at that, but then that seven-year courtship before that. So really, by the time he marries Jane Seymour, Anne Boleyn has dominated his life for 10 years. I think Henry's pretty exhausted by it. He wants an easy life and he wants an easy wife. And Jane Seymour fits the bill perfectly. Indeed, Chapuis went on to report that Jane was, quote, not a woman of great wit, describing her as, quote, of middle stature and no great beauty. So fair that one would call her rather pale than otherwise. But while Jane may not have had Anne Boleyn's sparkling charisma, she did share one of the key ingredients in her predecessor's success. Like Anne, Jane too was backed by power-hungry relatives. So the Seymour brothers are a force to be reckoned with in Henry's court. Edward Seymour is on the rise both in the sort of public world of the court, the Privy Council, but also he is a, a frequent visitor to Henry's Privy Chamber. He spends a lot of time with the king. Thomas as well, his his younger brother. Henry loves spending time with Thomas. He's good company. He's a bit more reckless, a bit more unpredictable than the very safe pair of hands that is Edward. But both of these brothers are really on the make. They represent the New England, the reformed religion. They are very much in tune with all of that. And it's interesting that they start to align themselves with 
Thomas Cromwell, who had been all about Anne Boleyn, but he's not a man to back the wrong horse. He soon starts to get behind the Seymours. And it's Cromwell who's instrumental in organising a royal progress in the summer of 1535 that happens to take in Wolf Hall, the Seymour family home. And that's no coincidence. Of course, anybody who is in power, who enjoys Henry's favour, they're going to have enemies as well as friends. There's more to Jane Seymour than meets the eye, as Nicholas says, but also she's being pushed forward by her ambitious family and particularly by her brothers. Edward Seymour is a man on the rise in Henry's court and he's seen what happened with Anne Boleyn. You know, it is possible for an ambitious family to push themselves to the very height of the court thanks to Henry's desire for a son. And so absolutely the Seymour brothers and her father, they're pushing Jane into the limelight. If Jane's relatives were keen to use her as a pawn in their own ambitions, it does raise one interesting question. Why hadn't she already made an advantageous marriage? Jane was in her mid to late 20s by this point. So why had her father and brothers not already found her a good match? There are kind of reports that her family were quite laid back about this and that there had been talk of a match arranged for her with William Dormer, but this apparently hadn't come to anything because William Dormer's mother believed that Jane wasn't good enough for her son. And so, yeah, they do seem to have been quite relaxed about this and it's difficult to try and find an explanation for this, really. But, of course, we've got to remember as well that Jane really was fast-tracked to queenship in many ways. She didn't have the long waiting game that, that Anne Boleyn did. And I think that the family really seized on that opportunity as soon as they noticed that Henry was tiring of Anne to push Jane forward. And, yes, her, her ambitious family are a massive part of it, as Tracy said, particularly her brother. But I think there's also this kind of steely determination from Jane herself to to really push herself to the fore. And as soon as she spies that opportunity, she's there. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Once this opportunity had arisen, how did things progress between Jane and Henry? We know that he did begin pursuing her with alacrity, certainly by the beginning of 1536. She's being talked about by Eustace Chapuis. And uh, we know that Henry was was sending her gifts. And we know that Jane was also dropping hints about marriage. And in April 1536, so the month before Anne Boleyn is arrested, Henry had sent Jane a gift of a purse of gold coins. But even this was too far for, for Jane, accepting money from the king. And there is this report about how she took the gift, she kissed the purse, and she returned it, saying that it would go against her honour to accept this until God had given her a husband. And of course, that's exactly the sort of thing that Henry wants to hear. It really, really appeals to him. On receiving this purse of gold coins, Jane told the king via a messenger how she, quote, was a gentlewoman of good and honourable parents without reproach, and that she had no greater riches in the world than her honour, which she would not injure for a thousand deaths. So what was Jane's game plan here? By playing hard to get and refusing Henry's advances without an offer of marriage, was she simply defending her well-renowned virtue and honour? Or was she singing from the same hymn sheet as Anne Boleyn, keeping the king at arm's length to appeal to his hunting instinct? I mean, we don't know exactly how she felt about Henry on a, on a personal level. I think in many ways she got swept along in the moment with what was going on. And I think that, of course, we talked about the fact that she was she was ambitious. She did have this ambitious family behind her as well. And I think she had witnessed the way in which the precedent had already been set with Anne Boleyn. So Henry had already married for personal reasons once. Why could he not do that again? And as I said, I think that Anne's demise provided Jane with the perfect opportunity to push herself forward. And as a stable, reassuring presence, it seems that Jane appeared at just the right time for Henry. There are a couple of reminders of his mortality at exactly this point. So in January 1536, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, dies. So uh, admittedly, she'd been a little bit older than him, but it's still a reminder. Also in January that year, Henry suffers a very serious accident whilst jousting. It leaves him with a wound to his leg, which never heals. And he's plagued by pain. He suddenly doesn't feel like a young man anymore. So time is not on his side. He needs to get a move on. He needs a son. And that definitely lends an urgency to his courtship of Jane Seymour, I think. The fact that Henry's health was starting to decline by this point, he is no longer seen as the most handsome and the most attractive king in Europe. So yes, on a personal level, how far could Jane have been attracted to this man? It's not necessarily possible for us to know the answer to that, but she certainly made a good show of appearing to be attracted to him, I suppose. With these reminders of his own mortality hanging over him, Henry wasted no time at all in psychologically transitioning from one wife to another. So 
Henry is moving from one wife to another with almost pathological swiftness. So he is, even while Anne Boleyn is still alive and a prisoner in the Tower, he's holding a very merry court at Whitehall. Jane Seymour is with him for some of that time. And then they separate temporarily, he he and Jane, while Jane goes off to, to Chelsea. Anne Boleyn is executed. As soon as he hears the signal, the firing of the cannons from the tower, Henry is sailing upriver to Chelsea to join Jane Seymour. As I mentioned, they are betrothed the very next day. They're married 10 days later. It's all incredibly swift. Henry is a joyful groom to his bride, Jane Seymour. It offends our sensibilities today. But at the time, uh, the Tudor PR machine was so effective that Anne Boleyn was this scandal of Christendom. Poor Henry had been betrayed by her. So everyone wished him well. They didn't see anything wrong with this. He'd simply moved on as he should. He'd got rid of a, a treacherous queen and married the virtuous Jane Seymour. And Henry didn't hang about, really, when it came to ministers or wives who had let him down in his eyes. They were just cut off and he moved on with brutal swiftness. But I just wonder if there's something else in this for Henry, if there's actually a gnawing sense of guilt, because I think Henry at heart knew that Anne Boleyn wasn't guilty. And I think he almost couldn't bear to dwell on that too much. He wanted to move on. He wanted to focus on what was right for him, what was right for his kingdom. It needed an heir, and that had become Henry's abiding obsession. So he had to act swiftly. I'm trying to defend him. It's pretty indefensible, his conduct, during this kind of period of just a few days, really, in May 1536. You only need to look at a timeline of events to see just how messy the overlap between Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour was. As we've mentioned, Henry and Jane were betrothed within 24 hours of his ex-wife's execution. But how significant was the presence of Jane quietly waiting on the sidelines in sealing Anne's fate? I think Jane was hugely significant in the demise of Henry's relationship with Anne Boleyn because she constantly gave him an appealing alternative. So Henry had this glittering hope of a different future with Jane as a constant presence in his court and serving his current wife. So it was in directly inverse proportion that Anne's star was falling and Jane's was rising. And amid all this chaos, as her predecessor was dragged kicking and screaming off her pedestal and very publicly executed, do we know how Jane felt about all of this? We don't really have any sense at all, to be honest. And we've talked about this determination that she had, this steely side of her character where she sort of, she pushed herself forward. But I think, I think the fact that Anne Boleyn had been executed must have filled her with trepidation to some extent because this was an unprecedented move for the removal of a wife. So if he had done that once before, what's to say that he might not do that again? So as much as Jane may have been elated at the prospect of queenship and marriage to the king, who knows, 
I think that it would be very, very difficult to imagine that it didn't fill her with some anxiety as well, having witnessed the very, very brutal and swift death of her predecessor. And along with Jane's feelings about this rapid transition of power, details about her wedding with Henry, just 10 days after the betrothal, also remain fairly mysterious. We know that it was conducted privately, as lots of Henry's weddings were. So we know that it was conducted in the Queen's Closet at the Palace of Whitehall on the 30th of May. But other than that, we don't have a great amount of detail about it. Certainly not a big kind of show that we're used to from royal weddings today. Henry just wanted to get on with it. But you know what they say about marry in haste, repent at leisure. It wasn't long before Henry is actually expressing something approaching regret. He makes a comment to Chapuis about there being better-looking women at court who he could have married, that perhaps he should have waited a bit longer. And the reason for this is that Jane doesn't immediately fall pregnant like Anne Boleyn had done. Anne had made it easy. There was all the excitement, the anticipation that she was carrying his male heir. Jane showed no sign of pregnancy for quite a while. Although she may not have immediately fallen pregnant, soon after becoming queen, Jane did nonetheless set to work building a royal family or rebuilding one. Jane was actually very busy from the start working to reconcile Henry with his daughter, Mary. Uh, so this is something that I think does her a great credit, the fact that she was not only very, very mindful of the fact that she was expected to provide Henry with her own child, with a male heir, but she was also very, very sympathetic to Mary. And she'd also served in the household of Catherine of Aragon, so she had also been sympathetic to her cause. And this is something that I think that she had a huge influence over Henry in, was bringing about this reconciliation between the two of them. Of course, Mary wasn't Henry's only child. What about Elizabeth, daughter of her now demonised predecessor Anne Boleyn? Did Jane extend the same kindness to her? It has been said that Jane perhaps didn't show as much interest in Elizabeth as she did in Mary. And I think that that is certainly true to an extent because we have to remember that Mary was far closer in age to Jane. And as I say, Jane had been very, very sympathetic to her plight. So Mary provided a more natural companion for her. But we do have references to Jane purchasing items of clothing for Elizabeth. So perhaps she wasn't quite as ignored as we've hitherto been led to believe. Jane was clearly skilled at reuniting Henry's fractured family. And bringing Mary back into the fold did a great deal to boost her popularity. But she had less opportunity to excel in other elements of her role as Queen Consort. Well, we know that uh, Henry was determined that Jane wasn't going to be as involved in politics as Anne had been. She knew that what her role was was to give Henry an heir and it didn't go any further than that. She was to be a very traditional queen consort. Anne had been the opposite of that. She had absolutely meddled in politics. She'd been a real force to be reckoned with in the Tudor court. Henry didn't want a repeat of that. Anne had lost focus, as he saw it, on what should have been her main business. Jane, it was made 
made very clear to her. And can you imagine the pressure on her shoulders, really, the weight that she carried? She knew what she had to do, but it was entirely down to Mother Nature. But there is one moment where we can see Jane trying to take a more active role in politics. In autumn 1536, just a few months into Jane's time as Queen, the turbulence unleashed by Henry's religious revolution began to catch up with him. As simmering discontent spilled out into all-out revolt in East Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. In what became known as the Pilgrimage of Grace, rebels rose up in anger against the dissolution of the monasteries, forming a large army that planned to march on London. Henry was keen for vengeance on those who dared to defy him. But Jane, who was religiously conservative by nature, sympathised with the rebels' grievances. Fueled by the intensity of her personal beliefs, Jane made a very brave, or very risky, move and spoke up on the rebels' behalf, pleading with her husband to restore the monasteries. Jane took a colossal risk when she spoke up on behalf of the rebels who took part in the Pilgrimage of Grace. Now, she had witnessed firsthand how dangerous it was for a queen consort to speak her mind in the court of Henry VIII because she had served Anne Boleyn. She had seen how Anne's outspoken nature had been really one of the nails in her coffin. And so she was really going against what she knew Henry wanted, what her ambitious family had tutored her to be like. But she felt so passionately about the religion that the pilgrims um, espoused and which was close to her own heart, that she decided to take that risk. But Henry had wanted a docile, obedient wife when he married Jane, and he wasted no time putting her back in her place. He slapped her down, really, not physically, but certainly in words. He told her, you know, not to make the same mistake as her predecessor. And the way in which Henry berated her for that, he was reminding her of how high the stakes were. And if she did the same thing again, she would go the same way as Anne Boleyn. Now, that was a very, very dangerous warning that he gave her. And Jane took it seriously. There's no evidence that she ever overstepped the mark. Jane learned that day that regardless of her own religious views, the way to survive in Henry's regime was to go along with the king's will. And by breaking with Rome, Henry had set a clear path for his country to follow, whether they liked it or not. Well, I think the irony is Henry was actually quite conservative as well in religion, if he had admitted it to himself. But he had to stick with it. He had to stick with this reformation. It had given him his annulment from Catherine of Aragon. It had made him head of a new Church of England, supreme head at that. So he couldn't be seen to be backtracking. And he certainly couldn't have his wife to be seen as a religious conservative. But that's what Jane was, I think, at heart. But she wasn't going to stand on ceremony or be sacrificed to her principles in that respect. So she conformed. And that's what Henry needed her to do. This was a New England now, and Jane had to be part of that. And perhaps because of this willingness to conform to the will of others and not rock the boat, Jane was a much less divisive figure at court than Anne Boleyn had been. 
many agreed with Sir John Russell's verdict that she was, quote, as gentle a lady as ever I knew, and as fair a queen as any in Christendom. She was very well received and quite popular. So we have the report of Sir John Russell, who was one of the king's courtiers, who talks about the fact that the king has come out of hell, basically in terms of his relationship with Anne and into heaven, by contrast with Jane. So she was very well received. And to all intents and purposes, she does seem to have been quite a popular queen. And from Henry's perspective, whereas with Anne Boleyn, he had to really pull out all the stops to convince the people of England that she was his rightful queen. He didn't have to do that with Jane because Anne was dead. So despite the shadows that loomed over its beginnings, this had the makings of a successful match. Yeah, I think so. And I think that Henry did genuinely love Jane to an extent. We know that it wasn't the great love match and the same great passion that he felt for Anne Boleyn. But I think that actually after the tumult of his relationship with Anne, I think he was quite happy and quite ready to settle down and enjoy a quiet life at this time. And Jane did encompass all of those things for him. And I think the other thing that Jane did very cleverly is to emphasise her Englishness. So Anne Boleyn had been very French in style, in appearance, and perhaps even in the way she spoke. But Jane Seymour brought back the fashion for the English gable hood, like um, Catherine Varrigan had worn. And let's get rid of all these French fashions and everything associated with all of that and, and just be thoroughly English. And I think Henry really warmed to that. After the high drama of the previous decade, changes in queens, advisors, regime and religion, Jane signified a new era of tranquility for Tudor England. I think that's what Henry hoped, certainly. He needed stability now. He was very anxious about the fact that he'd sort of lost the love of his people, not completely, but it had been dented by his religious changes and by his heartless rejection of Catherine of Aragon. And here was a king who loved to be popular, and he'd always taken that for granted. He'd had huge popularity upon becoming king and for the next 20 years, but now things were faltering a bit. So he needed stability. He needed a wife who would help him win back the heart as well as the minds of his people. And as always with Henry, there was one thing above all else that he believed would deliver him that stable future. A male heir. So we know that Jane's pregnancy was announced in the spring of 1537 with a baby that was due in the autumn. Henry was absolutely elated and once more the hope of providing this son and expectation was high. We know that during Jane's pregnancy she relied very much on the companionship of her stepdaughter Mary who was by her side at court a lot of this time and we also know that she developed a craving for quails and this is one of my favourite facts about her. I think it's wonderful that we've got that sort of evidence about pregnancy craving for a Tudor queen. And we know that Henry went to great lengths to try and obtain these for her because they were out of season at this time. He went as far as sending to his uncle, Lord Lyle, in Calais to get these quails to be delivered. So I think Jane must have been delighted when throughout the spring and summer, quails were arriving in large quantities at the court to satisfy her every craving. Does that suggest a fairly warm and doting relationship at this point? 
well, yes. You know, Anne Boleyn had a craving for apples. He indulged that too. And look how that turned out. As Jean's pregnancy progressed through the summer and autumn of 1537, she would have been under no illusions as to the importance of delivering a healthy child. And most importantly, a son. With anticipation and pressure surely at a fever pitch for Jane, preparations began to be made for the royal birth. The court moved to Hampton Court, where Jane takes to her chamber in mid-September. So, of course, childbirth is an exclusively female process. She bids goodbye to her male courtiers and technically isn't supposed to emerge again until after the birth. We know that it was a very difficult birth for Jane, that she was in labour for two days and three nights, but that eventually she does give birth on the 12th of October at two o'clock in the morning to finally the legitimate male heir that Henry has so desperately craved and that this child is called Edward. Finally, after two failed marriages, years of torment and a religious revolution, Henry had got what it had all been for, a son. On news of Prince Edward's birth, England erupted in celebration, with music and bonfires lit in the streets. Te Deums sang in every parish church in London, and hogsheads of wine and barrels of beer given out to the poor. To begin with, it looks as though Jane is going to recover from the birth and we know that she was well enough to write to Cromwell, for example, to deliver the news of Edward's arrival. And when Edward was christened on the 15th of October, three days after the birth, this very, very elaborate christening, all seemed well. But on the day following her son's christening, as the country continued to celebrate, behind the scenes, Jane suddenly took a turn for the worse. Cromwell reported that those attending the Queen fed her unsuitable foods and, quote, suffered her to take great cold. Despite prayers for her recovery, Jane was soon fast slipping away. We don't have many details about how her condition worsened over the days, but on the 24th of October, 1537, just two weeks after Edward's birth, Jane died at around midnight at Hampton Court Palace. It has long been said that she died as a result of puerperal fever, which was caused by doctors' dirty hands and poor hygiene. This has recently been questioned. Alison Weir conducted a lot of research for this when she was writing her novel about Jane Seymour. And she suggested, quite credibly, I think, that Jane actually suffered from two illnesses, two separate illnesses, the first of which was food poisoning and the second of which she may have had an embolism which led to heart failure. And I think that that probably is quite accurate. While Jane's premature death was incredibly tragic, it wasn't that unusual. Death due to complications in childbirth was fairly common for women at the time. It was incredibly frequent. One statistic has the average life expectancy for a woman at this time of being just 35. And that was due to childbirth, really, of the the high instance of death 
in childbirth from a whole range of things, from childbed fever, you know, infections that Nicola alluded to there, to, you know, difficult labours. And, you know, without the aid of modern medicine, in a way, it's a wonder that the rate of mortality wasn't even higher. Childbirth was probably the most dangerous thing that a woman could go through in her life. After yearning for some stability, Henry found himself on an emotional roller coaster once again. He'd finally been granted the son he had wanted above all else. But this blessing was swiftly followed by the death of the wife who delivered it to him. So Henry's immediate reaction is one of shock and devastation. And he talks of how God has effectively given with one hand and taken away with the other. And he is grief-stricken. He's weeping when he's seen in public and then he retreats into private to mourn his beloved third wife who has given him everything he ever wanted but died in the process. And and it does come as a real shock to Henry. The court is in mourning. And so Edward's birth is forever really tinged with sadness for Henry and indeed for England. But I am going to add a postscript and you'd expect that there would be a twist in the tale when it comes to Henry VIII. And the postscript is that, yes, if you read the Tudor PR, then Henry is a mourner for the rest of his days. Jane Seymour is his favourite wife, forever hallowed in memory. If you read the actual reports of what Henry is getting up to, he is said to be as merry a widower as could be found. So, hmm, yes, undoubtedly, Henry's shocked. He's very sad at Jane's death, but he gets over it with characteristic swiftness, I would say. The other thing he was doing was contemplating wife number four. While Henry had been married to Catherine for almost 24 years and locked in a love-hate relationship with Anne for a decade... He'd only been married to Jane for around 18 months by the time of her death. And yet, Jane is often described as the wife that Henry loved the most. Is that accurate? Or did he just not have time to tire of her? I think that Henry's love for Jane has been somewhat overrated. And I think it's very easy for us to say that she was the wife that Henry loved the most, purely because she was the only one who succeeded where the other wives had failed in providing Henry with that precious son. And I think that the briefness of her life and reign has really contributed to this, because had she survived, we have no idea how the rest of that relationship would have played out. Would Henry have been faithful to her? I don't think so. I suspect not. And I think also he did have a wandering eye. I think that Anne Boleyn was without doubt the wife who had kept him on his toes the most, the one who he had exhibited the most passion for. So yes, she may have ended her life in a rather brutal fashion. But I think that she was probably actually the wife that we can say that Henry had the most love for. But despite where Henry's true passions may really have laid, in the years after their deaths, Anne's memory was reviled and Jane's was sanctified. Henry was keen to show the world that his heart remained with the woman who had given him his son. On his own death a decade later, it was Jane that he was buried beside, in Windsor's St George's Chapel. He left visual reminders of Jane as well with the 
famous portrait, The Family of Henry VIII, which was painted right uh, towards the end of his reign. And even though he was then married to Catherine Parr, he's shown with Jane Seymour. She's kind of brought back from the dead as his wife there next to his heir, Edward, and his two daughters, Elizabeth and Mary. So she's kind of painted in posthumously. But that's just all propaganda. And I think it's propaganda that he chose to be buried next to Jane Seymour as well. He wanted history to remember Jane because she's the one who gave him a son. And I think it's as simple as that. I don't think she was the wife whom Henry loved the most. He certainly revered her memory. If I'm pushed on that, I would actually say Catherine of Aragon probably was Henry's favourite wife. She's the one who fitted the mould of what he expected a queen to be. But of course, she didn't give him the son. Jane and Henry's marriage may not quite have been the partnership of endless devotion that he later portrayed it to be. But she clearly knew what was wanted from a queen consort at that particular moment. By taking a passive role in the relationship, helping to heal Henry's fractured family and conceding to his will, Jane was bringing stability to the reign and securing her own safety. If she had survived... It would have been fascinating to see how the marriage might have played out in the long term. But from the brief time she did act as Queen, how should we view Jane today? It's quite a difficult one in some respects because we don't have as much information about her as perhaps we should have and as we do in regards to the other wives. I think... We should remember her and give her credit as being the family healer, so the one who brought Mary back into the folds of things. She did also have an interest in the projection of the royal image, and we see this in the spectacular portrait of Jane, which survives, that was painted by the great master Hans Holbein. I think that this is one of the most powerful images of a queen consort prior to the reign of Elizabeth I. And we see Jane is fully bedecked in all of the magnificence of a queen of England. So she was someone to whom dress and and jewels meant a great deal as well. We know that after her death, her jewels were inventoried and uh, contained a collection of over 500 pieces. So Again, what can we make of this in terms of Jane? Personally, it's difficult to know. But I do think that perhaps she was very conscious of this more visual side of queenship and the need and desire to project an image of queenly power and authority. It's all about symbolism, basically. And it's all about the evidence we're left to deal with and to go on. And the evidence for Jane Seymour is she's flawless. She's the the wife who doesn't put a foot wrong. She looks majestic and she's the mother of Henry's heir. She's the glory of the Tudor dynasty. But it's so ironic when you look at what actually happened. Her son only reigns for six years. He dies at the age of 15 he's pretty much forgotten. It's actually Henry's younger daughter, Elizabeth, who everybody has forgotten in her lifetime, who goes on to become the glory of the Tudor dynasty. Next week, we'll be moving on to wife number four, Anne of Cleves, revealing how a woman who's been dismissed by history as a comedy anecdote was in fact a canny political operator with a full and fascinating life. Thanks to my guests for this episode, Dr. Tracy Borman and Dr. Nicola Tallis. Nicola is an author and historian whose books include Crown of Blood, The Deadly Inheritance of Lady Jane Grey, 
and Elizabeth's rival, The Tumultuous Tale of Lettuce Knowles. Tracy's a historian, joint chief curator of historic royal palaces, and the author of books including Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him and The Private Lives of the Tudors. If you enjoyed this podcast episode on Jane Seymour, then be sure to head over to historyextra.com forward slash six wives to watch a brand new video with historian Nicola Tallis answering key questions about Jane. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden and Ben Hewitt. It was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorne. Additional checks by Rob Attar and Josette Reeves. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.